0: Hey, it's Andrew Claven with this week's interview. Today I'm interviewing David Mamet. And I want to warn you before we start that I am a fan. I was, I, you know, I love the theater and I was at uh, one of the early, the early production of Glengarry Glen Ross. It opened in England, but I saw it's early American opening with uh, Joe Mantegna, Speed the Plow that had Madonna in it and Ron Silver and Mantegna again. Anna I saw it in London. Just terrific, terrific plays. He's also, of course, the screen a uh, very accomplished screenwriter with two uh, of my favorite pictures, The Untouchables and The Verdict. And he's a director as well with uh, House of Games. His new book is about Hollywood it's called Everywhere and Oink Oink an Embittered Dyspeptic and Accurate Report of 40 Years in Hollywood and I'm about 70 between 70 and 100 pages into it and it's I it's the best of his books I've read it is absolutely hilarious and I highly recommend it and just one other note which is I have to say I owe David personally, because many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, he wrote a piece that shocked the literary world in The Village Voice, announcing that he was no longer a brain-dead liberal. And this made me so delighted that I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times uh, celebrating his decision. And Andrew Breitbart, who I had never met, called me up and said, you are the only person in the conservative movement who knows how important it is that David Mamet wrote that column. And that was how Andrew and I became friends. David, thank you so much for coming on. It's a genuine pleasure to see you. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. What's up? So I'm, I'm loving the book. The book is really hilarious. But before I get to that, I want to I do want to ask you, go back and ask you, what was it that woke you up to leftism? What was it that changed your mind?
1: Well, it was the leftist that woke me up because I uh, at that point, whatever the hell that was, my rabbi was saying we have to have political civility. He says it's more important than anything. He says, um, We live in a democracy, people have different views. If they didn't have different views, we would live in a dictatorship. They have different views and we adjudicate them by an electoral process. He says, we have to be civil. And he said that the, here's what the Jewish idea of political civility is. I state your position such that you say, yes, that is my position. You state my position such that I say, yes, that is my position. Now our positions are clear. We understand that. Now we proceed to facts. We say, okay, since we each have stated each other's position, we know where we stand. Let's bring forward facts. Do we agree that this is a fact? Yes. Okay, that's the basis for discussion. Do we not agree that this is a fact? No, then that's off the table. So the only things we bring into the discussion are things which we communally assent to as being a fact. Now we can discuss the facts, right? We've met upon the level and we're going to part on the square. We want to discuss the facts. That's called political civility. So I wrote an article for the LA Times. I checked that. That was for a newspaper, actually. It was for the um, English Voice, called Political Civility. And as part of the article, I said, you know, I'm not even civil to myself. I said, for years, I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. That's incivility. My position is my own. I'm entitled to it. I don't have to beat myself up. So the Village Voice takes this article, and there's a scarehead, takes up the whole front page, why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal. So at that point, uh, the people I thought were my friends turned into acquaintances and the people i thought were well, my acquaintances turned into to enemies right and my enemies turned into fiends and i realized that we're that we are in a huge uh, political crisis in this country which threatens uh, the very integuments if i may of american democracy and they said you know thanks for all the plays and thanks for being so forthcoming Just just one thing F- you <laughs> so that was the beginning of I had to look around and say, "Hey, how, wait a second! How long has this been going on?" Right? It's like Sarah Silverman; she got kicked to the curb, and she said, "For I can't remember what for." Oh yeah, for putting on blackface when she was six years old, and she went, "Weep, weep, weep! It's my own party! It's my party! Can't kick me out!" And I thought, "Well, Sarah, you know, welcome to the world. Your party just did kick. You. Your party can't kick you out." because the, the the left is a party of fascism. And uh, you're going to have to uh, sign on to absolutely uh, uh, every proposition, or you're out. And so I said, oh, okay, I get it. And I, I understand, you know, I read the Torah, I read history, uh, these things happen, right? It's called the, the death of a civilization and the necessity to stand up, right? So from that point, that I go kicking and screaming? yeah. You know, Moses went kicking and screaming. Jesus went kicking and screaming, right? Everybody went kicking and screaming, you know, except for Buddha who put his hand down underneath the poetry. And, uh, you know, he, he had a weight problem. He probably just wanted to sit around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you told me once, we were at a dinner, a Breitbart dinner in Hollywood, and you told me that after this happened, the New York Times showed up at your next play and gave you a bad review twice. Has has, yes. has any of that has any of that gotten any better?
1: No, f- pardon me, <laughs> but I going to speak English from now on. Listen, the New York Times is der Stürmer, right? It, it it's the it, it's the house organ of fascism, you know. So so the the New York Times was the Torah of my Jewish youth. Yes, of yeah. everybody's Jewish youth, right? Right. If it wasn't in the New York Times. It was the voice of reason. It was the voice of, um, of a true liber- liberality. It was the voice of culture. And it may have been that to a certain extent at one point, but it's not anymore. So I wrote this this hysterically funny play, Nathan Langston called November, about a president who's got the lowest approval ratings in history. And uh, he's running for office, but he doesn't have any money. So it's almost Thanksgiving, and they come to him and say, well, we'll give you $100,000 if you pardon a turkey. You always pardon a turkey every year. And he says, well, this year they have they have two turkeys, because last year the turkey got sick. There's a main turkey and alternate turkey. He says, well, then uh, they're going to have to give me $200,000. hundred grand to turkey, that's the going price. So the turkey guy shows up, and the president says, welcome, you're going to have to pay me $200,000 and the turkey says, the heck with you. He says, Your your numbers are lower than Gandhi's cholesterol. You're a loser. We you know, we don't you know, need we don't need your help. So the president gets mad and he says, Okay. He says, I want a hundred million dollars on my plate by breakfast tomorrow. I'm gonna to pardon every f- turkey in the United States. So this play is hysterically funny. Nathan Lane gives the best performance ever. And um it's Curiously apolitical, it's a play about politicians rather than about politics. And the New York Times gives it this terrible, terrible review. And then the, the thing comes out of the Village Voice, and they come back the next week to give it an even worse review.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Just to make sure you so, understood. You know. Yeah.
1: So, oh, you know, okay. You know, let's give it, as we used to say, give it a name. What's going on here? So that was my beginning of a, a little bit of a um, a political awakening, and as I say, you know, I I went kicking. I didn't want to go. I said I'm having a good time. You know, making a couple of bucks. I got a nice wife and family and like that. I I really don't want to go around with everybody hating me. But then I remembered, you know, my dad was in uh, the army during World War Two. My grandfather was in the Navy during World War One. My, my grandfather was an immigrant. My dad was born right off the boat. Um, the American system allowed them to thrive. And my question was, what did I ever give back to the United States of America? Mm-hmm. The answer is, you know, nothing. I wrote plays for a living, but blah blah, blah blah It's my responsibility. Who, the question was, who's going to build the cat, right? And so that's the question, of the, the, that, that's, a, that's a moral question. And I said, you know, I'm a big fat sinner. Sure I am, right? But um, somebody's got to bell the cat, and I've been mouthing off for you know for all these years about this and that and the next thing. Uh, I guess it's me. So I, I, I hope I do have been to whatever extent fulfilling my responsibilities uh, as a great beneficiary of American democracy, which is to say of the sacrifices. Of men and women over 250 years, and especially of my grandparents who came here, uh, not speaking the language with nothing,
0: uh, and here I am. Do you do you still get bad reviews all the time, or do you can you get around? I the- don't.
1: Re- I haven't read reviews for years. Why? <laughs> yeah. you, you know, yeah. it's like how uh, uh, how many bites of tainted fish do you need? <laughs> so, and the- somebody, somebody, I got to tell you this because I just learned this. Somebody said this to me the other day. He said, other people's opinions are none of your business. <laughs> I said, oh, that's wisdom. OK, yeah, yeah. I like it.
0: Yeah. So the book Everywhere and Oink Oink, an embittered, dyspeptic and accurate report of 40 years in Hollywood is, in fact, an embittered and dyspeptic report and absolutely hilarious. But I, I couldn't help thinking. I mean, you've had a, a, actually a great Hollywood career. Why are you embittered and dyspeptic?
1: I'm actually not. If you read the book, it's full of, uh, it's it's nothing but gags. Yeah. It's nothing but cartoons by me. I've had the best, you know, Hollywood don't owe me nothing, right? Uh, my career in Hollywood has been the ability to um, make movies, right? That's the payoff. It's like Ingersoll said, the battle is the payoff. Ralph Ingersoll in World War II said, the battle's the payoff. I've had a great time. Right Now, it's one of the wonderful things about actually being in the movie business, which is, to to say, actually making movies, whether you're writing them, directing them, uh, costuming them, uh, or or, or in pre-production, is um, you get to hate uh, the people in the suits, because they're idiots. (laughs) And as I say in the book, you know, God put them on the earth, so obviously God put them here for a reason. I I would wish that the reason wasn't be to f up my films. But <laughs> the thing about making a movie is you need an idea and a camera. That's all you need. You can make a movie on if you got an idea, whether you do or not, you can make a movie on this little iPhone, which is if you got a great idea, and know what you're doing, can be as good as Lawrence of Arabia. That's all you need. The people who made the the original films they didn't have technology that was near this good, right? That we have in our pocket. Also on the conservative side, what the people realized is that, that Hollywood, like any organism, what's an organism's best trick? Do you know what it is?
0: Reproduction? Dying. Dying, okay.
1: Yeah, that's an organism's, you know, the organisms are a one-trick pony. You know, we look at the Mayfly, or we look at the Black Widow Spinner. You know, we we reproduce and die to make make room for new life, whether that is the cells in our body, or that is the United States of America, or that is um, the movie business. So the cause of a, a boom is a bust, and the cause of a bust is a boom, Right elevator operators are dealing in stocks in so 1929 some of them getting very rich of course the stock market's going to crash so the the, the movie business became so incredibly powerful and had such a a monopoly on our, on our on our attention that the the tail started wagging the dog and the bureaucrats started saying oh so the, the bureaucrats are there just like in government to keep their jobs to, to 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 browbeat their inferiors and 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 to kiss the ass of their superiors it's What bureaucrats do right whatever the supposed um, point of the organization is is ancillary right the bureaucrats in washington don't care about the united states of america they care about their ass that's why they're bureaucrats right if they cared about the united states they would join the military you know or get a job so similarly in the movie business the bureaucrats who, th- their parking lots, huge parking lots all over Los Angeles, those parking lots used to be the back lots of the studios. The back lots were where they made bunches of movies. They made so many movies that they just had a standing set of a cowboy town, of a New England village, of a French cathedral. And they just churned out the movies. Now those parking lots, now those back lots are parking lots, right, for, for bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will spawn bureaucrats. You know, they're like cockroaches. They give birth. They give birth to their kind, and they, you know, and and then they're termites and they eat the house. But so there are people on the other side who said, "Wait a second, duh! Technology has changed again, just like technology changed and uh, movies re- wiped out vaudeville, and just like technology changed and TV wiped out radio. So technology has changed, and you can download your your um." your product. You don't have to go through the studios. You can download your product uh, directly. For example, some conservatives made a movie about Jesus with Jim Caviezel, right? Made a lot of money. So they said, oh, we'll make another movie. So they made a movie with Jim Caviezel called Sound of Freedom, right? It's a very, very good movie, Mm -hmm. but it's a straight up they, they, they kidnap this little girl. I, as a police officer, have to get her back. There's nothing particularly conservative about the movie at all. It's just a damn good movie. But what's particularly conservative is the audience who said, Lord, have mercy. I love that movie about Jesus. I'm going to see what you do next. They made it for $20 million. They made a half a billion dollars. There's a huge audience out there that's just had it with this woke garbage it's nobody enjoys that stuff right they we watch it when it's downloaded because we have no choice right w- what's our choice oh black people who realize that, that white people who finally finally come to realize that black people are people too or <laughs> straight people who finally finally come to realize that transsexuals are people too or who cares you know, f- cares? <laughs> you know? Well, nobody I- goes to Nobody goes to see these movies on purpose because they just aren't enjoyable. So what everybody is, the smart people are realizing, is people want to hear stories. Pe- whether there's liberal or conservative, they don't make any difference. You tell them a good story, they'll show up. So what 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 the smart people are doing is saying to hell with the New York Times, right? And to hell with Warner Brothers and Disney. It's dead. It's just f- dead and it stinks, right? Let's have some fun. And maybe in the process, we'll do some good by pleasing people. And maybe in that process, we'll make a couple of bucks. What could be better?
0: That, I, that does seem to be happening. But you have a line in the book, Everywhere oink Coink. You have the line that really struck me because conservatives complain about all the things you're talking about, the mm-hmm. wokeness and the you know the bad values and all the stuff, the anti-religious values. They complain about all this. But you have this line, and I'm going to read it slightly edited to, so people get it. It says, the movies today are made and advertised not to excite the natural thirst for adventure and novelty, but to satisfy the human desire for conformity. They are no longer in the service of Eros. I, I thought that was like really on point, incredibly specific. Can you explain to me what, how you write a story that satisfies the human desire for conformity, what that looks like?
1: Oh, when you desire a uh, story that satisfies the human desire for conformity? Yeah, how do you? Yeah, what you're doing. You know, yeah. look, it's possible to make, make wonderful films in the service of fascism. Lenny Riefenstahl certainly did it, right? She was like the, the prime example of a genius who turned her uh, genius to evil. Right. There's also the, the, the Soviet tradition of me and my tractor, right? I am in love with my tractor. I am in love with my tractor family. Oh, my goodness. There's a bad worker who's not working as hard as he should. Doesn't he realize that these tractors, uh, you can't do the wheat to feed? I will help him. I will bring him to a sense of his his own worth, that his own worth comes through service. What nonsense. Listen, if you, the worth of a story is the same as the worth of a joke told at the bar, or a story told to a kid at bedtime, right? It taps into the deepest human desire to share an experience that's not rational, right? That some people used to call it religion, right? But the same thing is, the same, a joke is not rational, but it's true. Here's the difference, right? A penguin, a nun, and an octopus walk into a bar, okay? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now you're listening. You say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Tell me. It's not rational. But you say, I get it. Something interesting is going to happen that's going to reveal something to me. I put myself in this guy's hands. Right. It's not rational. It's true. Just like the Bible. Right. Well, people say, well, wait a second. Wait a second. You're telling me that this, quote, supreme being actually parted the Red Sea. You can't part the Red Sea. We say, I can't part the Red Sea, right? I can part the Red Sea. No, I don't believe it. I don't believe you can part the Red Sea. I say, okay, you don't believe you can part the Red Sea, but you believe that the solar ice caps are melting and so that we're all going to both freeze to death and burn to a cinder at the same time. Uh, how does that work, right? We're deeply irrational people, and what drama does and what humor does especially is it allows us to enjoy our own irrationality and say... I guess I, wow, you know, we're all, we're all here together, right? We're the craziest monkeys that ever lived, and we're all here together, right? So we see Hamlet, and they say, oh, my God, there's this is ghost running around. There's this is ghost running around. People don't say, excuse me, ghosts don't exist. You say, yeah, well, I want to watch that story. And because we're taken out of ourselves, we enjoy the story, and we're moved to laughter or tears, Right? But the wokeness puts us right back on ourselves. Hmm. So yes, I I agree on that. People they, they puff up their chest and they, and, and, and and right, don't uh, they? God. When yeah. they leave, yes, what God? I understand that those people are people too, and the bad bad people, the haters, bibbity bobbity boo. What nonsense! But you know, you could a joke at a bar where people shooting the breeze or going to an AA meeting or something like that. They're sharing their humanity, which is so far beyond and so much more important than their political uh, position.
0: Okay, I get it. Beam, I love this stuff. The Beams Dream Powder contains a powerful all-natural blend of ingredients, including magnesium L-theanine, but I don't care either. I just know that it puts me to sleep. It's not just your run-of-the-mill sleep aid. It's a concoction carefully crafted to help you slip into the sweet embrace of rest without the grogginess that often accompanies other sleep remedies. I don't sleep long, but I sleep deeply when I drink this stuff. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health. You must have a consistent nighttime routine to function at your best. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beams Dream Powder, they're best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. It's now available in delicious flavors like cinnamon cocoa, chocolate peanut butter, and mint chip. Better sleep has never tasted better. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth. You can have this funny froth machine that I like and enjoy before bedtime. If you find yourself battling the bedtime blues, give it a shot. Your weary self will thank you. If you want to try Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, take advantage of their New Year's sale for 40% off for a limited time when you go to shop Beam dot com slash claven and use code clavin at checkout that shop b-e-a-m dot com slash clavin with my promo code Claven for up to 40% off your order. I know I know what you're saying. You're saying I can spell beam but Claven how do you spell clavin k-l-a v a n I'll give you a hint no ease in clavin. There are no ease in claven you, I have to ask some gossip questions. I mean, you worked on The Untouchables, uh, just a terrific movie. You're working with Sean Connery, uh, you know, a great cast. Was was that that wasn't your was that your first movie or was it House of Cards? I can't remember.
1: The first movie I wrote was The Postman Always Rings Twice. The Postman Always Rings Twice. Bob, That's right yeah. for Jack Nicholson.
0: So, how was the experience of working of doing The Untouchables? It was great. Yeah,
1: I wrote it and they took it away, and uh, they made the movie. And that's generally been my experience of working on a movie. I write them a, drip, a draft, and either they say, once in a while, they say thank you, or they generally say this wasn't what I expected. And I say, well, that's why you're paying me, you <laughs> idiot. Right? If it was what you expected, you could have Right? <laughs> you could I had that... I went around with Harvey Weinstein at one point, and he wanted me to write something for him. I met with him a few times, and he said, "Okay." He said, um, "I said, well, okay. Now it's time to time for the meter to drop. You know, you want to engage me, talk to my people, and and I'll I'll write you an outline." He said, "Well, you want me to pay?" He says, "You want me to pay you before you write the outline?" I say, "Yes, because that's the deal." He says, "Well." What if I don't like the outline? I said, well, I'm gonna do the best job I can. You know who I am, you've seen my work. You're capable of making a decision. You might be right or you might be wrong, but you can, I would think, reasonably conclude that you could trust me to do the best I can. And that's what you're paying me for. He says, yes, but what if I don't, what what if you don't do the best you can? I said, "Well, so what you're saying is, you think I'm a thief?" And he kind of made a noise like, "Well." (laughs) I said, "Well, I said, well, then you write the (laughs) line and and left because that's the only important word in Hollywood, no, right? Because what you're going to do right down the line is negotiate a contract, right? Which, from my point of view, is a." a pledge for a specific performance, and from the point of view of the studios, is the worst case scenario. <laughs> because what's gonna happen is, the, 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 they don't care about the contract, they're gonna say, um, oh, okay, you're a human being, and I have uh, 25 lawyers that are each paying half a million dollars to defend me, would you like to sue me? The answer is, uh, uh, from bitter experience, no. So what's going to happen is, if you have a wrong career in Hollywood in the old days, you're going to get screwed, blued, and tattooed, right? <laughs> if you're a young person of either sex, people are either going to try to get you into bed or get you into bed, right? People are going to try to get as much work as they can out of you for nothing. They're going to lie to you. It's a tough business. Once in a while, you're going to meet magnificent people, right, who say thank you and who you would die for, right, because they treat you with respect, Right? that's going to be a rare occurrence. That may be a rare occurrence in any business. And to have a, a a situation beyond that, which is actually not transactional, which is, I say, of course you need to get paid, and of course I need the script, but I so enjoy working with you. That's worth anything, right? Whether or not you get paid.
0: Is, is there, Are there movies that you have written but not directed that you think are really good? Uh.
1: That's a very good question. Yeah, I thought I thought Ronin was a wonderful movie. I thought The Edge was a wonderful movie. There's a bunch of movies that I directed that I didn't that I wrote that I didn't direct that I thought were pretty good. Glenn Gary, Glen Ross, a superb movie, Jamie Foley directed that. Yeah. yeah. Um there's a bunch of them.
0: But not uh, not the verdict and the untouchables? <laughs> I
1: love I loved them too. they yeah. they were they were uh, right. The thing you know one of the wonderful things about having an overlong career uh, in anything, especially in show business, is people come up to you and they nod and they say, you know what the best thing you ever wrote is, don't you? <laughs> and I say, yeah, the first thing I wrote. Tell me, the first thing you
0: wrote. <laughs> I say,
1: yeah, well, thank you. So I guess I've just been you know, taking up electricity since then. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> so that's the thing about re- reviews is that um, the the good ones are as harmful as the bad ones, right? The bad ones are destructive if you read them, and the good ones are destructive if you read them. And anybody you meet who comes up to you, anything past uh, I enjoy your work, is likely to um, transgress the Jewish um, restriction on flattery. Because the, the rabbi said flattery is theft. Well, what does that mean? Oh, if I flatter someone, that means that I'm trying to do, get something from them, but I wouldn't get an uninflected interchange, right? Even if that's to make them feel better. It's not my job to make them feel better. So I say keep your damn mouth closed,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so... Uh, I'm, I'm a big theater fan, although I, I don't think I've seen anything really good in the theater for quite some time. Uh, will you go back to the theater? Will you write for the theater again?
1: I'm writing for the theater all the time. I did a, a play that I really loved just before COVID called The Christopher Boy's Communion. And uh, we did that in a small theater out here. And then during the the, the strike, you got to love these people, right? They went on strike, and my friend Marja Lewis Ryan, who directed a lot of my works, terrific director, says, "Let's do let's do a play. You, you got anything you have?" So I re- had this play I wrote called Henry Johnson, and it was sitting around. And I sent it to her. She said, "Yeah, let's do it." So I called up a, a bunch of people who I knew, uh, you know Dominic Hoffman and uh, Chris Bauer and uh, David Paymer and Shia above and so we did the play. And it was really I loved it. She directed it, and at the end of the limited run, it was Shia and Evan Jonakite, who uh, was was playing Henry Johnson. Was also my son-in-law. Is my my uh, beloved son-in-law. Is my uh, daughter Sasha's husband. He said, "Let's do a movie." I said, "Well, yeah, okay. Where are you going to get the money?" And he says, "We'll do it for nothing." And they just made a movie. uh, Shia just made a movie called. um, Peanut butter Falcon, a really good movie. They made that movie for a jump change. Because you don't need a lot of money to make a movie. Right. Right? You need a camera and you and you need to know what you're doing. Uh so I said, Well, gosh, you know, where are we gonna get the money? He said, I don't know. He says, the guy who funded this thing, he made 25 grand. Well reach out, we'll get the money, we'll go together. So we made the movie. And it's—I'm really, really happy with the movie, and I'm just finishing cutting it now. And um, we're going to take it to Cannes. And um, I realized, you know, it's time to stop get, to get out of my COVID, um, uh, uh, the country's dying head, and go back to work hmm. because I re- because I, ca- I can't work in the in the studio system anymore because a hey, they don't want me, and b more importantly I don't want them. My deal has always been. You know, give me a lot of money, leave it alone, and you're free to, to hate it. Or give me a little bit of money, leave it alone. And um, th- those experiences were even more fun. So I said, well, wait a second. We'll make this movie in a short amount of time for nothing. I got a million of them. I got a stack this high of stuff that, that I haven't done. So I'm looking forward, uh, God willing and weather permitting, to, to doing a lot of movies. Cool. and so these yeah. guys, well, so wait a second, so these guys who did The Sound of Freedom... They came to me and they said, you want to write a, a movie for us? I said, yeah, sure. What do you got? They said they wanted to do a movie about Hunter Biden. <laughs> so I, I thought about it for a while. And I said, um, OK. I said, but here's, here's what. I said, I'm gonna, you know, you're going to pay me a couple of bucks, not, nothing not much. Maybe a back end, haha." But the deal is, you give me half of that couple of bucks now. I give you a half you give me the half of the other couple of books when I hand you the script and we're done. I'm not gonna call him Hunter Biden and it's not gonna be a travelogue, because the hardest part the hardest, the most challenging form of drama is biography. Cause of course you have to show George Washington chopping out a cherry tree, right? but you also have to show him taking his leave of the troops or, or crossing the Delaware or Valley Forge, blah, 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 blah. Now you're making a travelogue, right? So the, I've written a few biographies as, as uh, dramas. You have to get inside and say, what don't the people know? So Hitchcock said, if you're going to Paris, for God's sake, show them the Eiffel Tower, right? But after you show him the Eiffel Tower, you're done, right? You don't want to say, oh, look, There's the Madeleine over there, right? (laughs) Oh, that must be the Louvre. Oh, look at all the nice people with their berets and their little loaves of thing, you know, going off to their mistresses at night with poodles. They must be French people, right? So the question is, if it's not interesting, it doesn't matter if it's Hunter Biden. And if it is interesting, it doesn't matter if it's Hunter Biden. People don't care, right? Right? They made this movie about Lincoln, which Sally Field playing uh, Mrs. Lincoln says to her husband, Abe, hey, you're upset. Is it
0: that slavery thing? <laughs> <laughs> I saw that movie, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there was a book that John Steinbeck wrote called Bomber about how great it was to be a bomber pilot and a navigator. It wasn't even the bomber pilot. It was the bombardiers on, on, on the heavy airplanes. And Hemingway read it. He said, I wouldn't. I would, I I would have rather cut my arm off than have written that book. So that's what I feel about, about the Lincoln
0: thing. <laughs> I got to stop uh, the book. The author is David Mamet. Of course, the book is everywhere. An oink oink, and an embittered, dyspeptic, and accurate report of forty years in Hollywood. It is making me laugh out loud repeatedly. It's great, David. It's great talking to you, and I really look forward it's to seeing more to you Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. You know Mamet is really uh, an American original terrific playwright. I think some of his movies are really really good and this book you should definitely get it everywhere in Oink Oink an embittered dyspeptic an accurate report of 40 years in Hollywood and you should definitely tune in on Friday for the Andrew Claven show or else you will be clavenless it is a fate worse than being Clavin. and I will see you there.